Ok, parfait. I don't even try to generate a hypothesis. Most of the time, I think we are trying to fit the pieces together. And when you have a hypothesis, which is very similar to trying to put the pieces together of the jigsaw puzzle from the one box, what I always use as an analogy when I'm talking to people in my lab is that actually our life as a scientist is not only you have one 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, <laughs> hundreds of them, you know, from hundreds of boxes are dumped into All one All mixed thing. together. <laughs> not only... We can just put the two pieces of the puzzle together, whether it's going to fit or not. We also have to be always watching ourselves. Does that come from the same picture? <laughs> Welcome to the Night Science Podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Itai Yanai. And I am Martin Lurcher. Yukiko Yamashita is a professor of biology at MIT, and she's also an investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Yukiko studies the two major ways by which multicellular organisms are distinguished from unicellular microbes. First, during embryonic development, their cells need to diversify into different types in a highly ordered fashion. And second, these organisms need to transmit their genome to the next generation through only a small subset of these cells the germline. And Yukiko's lab studies both of these processes, making fundamental and often surprising discoveries about them. Yukiko's research is amazingly broad, too. If you look at her recent publications over only the last couple of years, she's worked on satellite DNA, the male germline, asymmetric divisions of stem cells, and mRNA localization, a bunch of things. And it's this broad set of topics that we think reflects her unusual creativity. So, Yukiko, welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Yukiko, we've heard you say that, quote, we don't get to choose what to study, suggesting that, you know, you explore and that you follow what's discovered, even though you didn't perhaps predict it. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? So, indeed, I feel like we don't get to choose what to study. The bottom line of it is how to make sure you do not get stretched too thin into studying almost nothing, right? This is something I also tell people in my lab. In a paper or in a glance, we first set up the question. And often that means thinking you are following certain things. And then one day you realize, oh, wait a minute. This is the answer to that question. And mm. then that question is often not something you exactly anticipated. The question comes to your mind as almost a surprise. Oh, now I realize this was the question I was asking by what I have been doing. So that is a kind of really, really fun moment in science. That's fascinating. So, you know, Yukiko, you said that you have to be a little bit mindful of not stretching yourself too thin. How do you know whether it's good to follow the data here and, and make a discovery or maybe the, your intuition tells you that it's too far away? Right. One thing I use is as a sort of criteria whether we should be going or not is whether we have solid evidence in front of us to suggest that something is there, even if we don't understand it yet. So often when we end up stretching yourself too thin is to go into 
too many different established fields. You know, some people have hypothesized this, other people hypothesized that, and then there's 10 different ideas. And then you、mm. try to address the question in each respective field. And then you start stretching yourself too thin. Anything that you do has to be really down to Exact data you have instead of what kind of a hypothesis you have in mind until the data starts telling you what it is. So you're saying that the questions you look at should be determined by the data that you acquire or that you can acquire, not by any questions or hypotheses that other people have put out. Exactly. I would say that way. Okay. That's, I think. An unusual way of approaching science. I mean, not unusual in the sense that there's not a lot of people who do exploratory data analysis, but unusual in the sense that it's probably pretty hard to convince funding agencies to pay for something. Not only funding agency, how do you convince your students and the postdocs to work on that kind of things? I actually do not convince them at all. Typically, we just sit together and talk. And then typically, it's them who want to. Pursue that kind of a direction based on what we are observing or what we are seeing in front of us. And another thing is to have the environment that is very forgiving to that kind of exploratory science. Yukiko, it seems that you're one of these people that really likes to break new ground. You like to essentially start new fields or new directions within existing fields. And then you're quite happy that other people will join you in this because then you can get out and go to a whole new field. Exactly. You know, as we follow certain things, we never know what we discover next. And people in my lab decide, oh, I thought I had been following this, but I clearly got something really important over here. We don't know if we end up with staying in this field, just studying this question, or we end up with just going to the next room. We can't tell. And when that happens, I think it's really good that other people come in and then join and start studying something similar. I think that's a very organic process of science. That sounds like you're more interested in hypothesis generation than in hypothesis testing. Would you agree with that? I would say so, yes. I don't even try to generate a hypothesis. Most of the time, I think we are trying to fit the pieces together. And when you have a hypothesis, which is very similar to trying to put the pieces together of the jigsaw puzzle from the one box, what I always use as an analogy when I'm talking to people in my lab is that actually our life as a scientist is not only you have one 5,000 piece jigsaw puzzle, <laughs> hundreds of them. You know, from hundreds of boxes are dumped into one. All、market. mixed together. <laughs> Not only we can just put the two pieces of the puzzle together, whether it's going to fit or not, we also have to be always watching ourselves. Does that come from the same picture? <laughs> Maybe, you know, at the beginning, you're going to sort the piece based on, oh, this is green. You know, this is greenish. Let's put them together into green. And you think you are working generally in this particular field of green. Your imagination is, yeah, this is a grass field, right? And all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, these two greens actually came from the completely different jigsaw puzzle picture. So that means I think most of the time we are really trying to put the multiple pieces together. But to do so, we have to be open minded. 
in that we shouldn't be assuming all green pieces fit into one thing. We end up with generating hypothesis, but we try to be agnostic about our own hypothesis all the time as we go. So typically we realize what was our hypothesis by looking back in a retrospect. Oh yeah, finally, I think that was a hypothesis. <laughs> Retrospective hypothesis. You know, yeah. about the puzzles, Yukiko, Martin and I have written about this and we introduced this concept that we call puzzle switching, which I think is exactly what you described, that in a certain sense, you may not be in the puzzle that you think you're in, you may have defined a particular puzzle for yourself, the, the same kind of sense that, you know, in introductory undergraduate courses, we give students puzzles and they're well-defined questions and it's a contained unit. You don't need anything from the outside. And then in research, we find that we don't have necessarily all the parts or the way we've defined the puzzle. It's not really the realm where we need to be in order to make progress. So what is the process for you of realizing that, oh my goodness, this piece from a totally different field. I mean, that kind of thing happens all the time. And it requires some sort of maturation as a lab mm. for us to be able to feel like, oh, maybe we could check that, we could check that. I think that's a collective knowledge inside the lab. It's not just my thing. And I always say that I don't necessarily know everything. I just know who to talk to in the lab. Mm. <laughs> I think this might be related to somebody's knowledge. I know that, but I might not necessarily know the primary literature about it, but I remember the context of what we talked about. And sometimes it rings a bell when somebody else is talking about something else. So the lab becomes an environment. So you describe your lab environment as some kind of ecosystem for puzzle solving. That's really cool. So does that mean that all the people in the lab work on all the problems simultaneously? Or is it just that if somebody has a problem or if you have something that you want to talk about, you just know who to go to, but that person is not actually usually involved in that process? That also happens a lot. So typically, everybody has their own independent project, highly unlikely to overlap with somebody else's project in a very direct way at all. So that means they have their own shop. And sometimes we realize oh, that shop and this shop all of a sudden makes sense to do things together. That was everybody's working on the different things with different interests. And one day the discussion made all of us realize, oh my God, we can join the force or this and that piece. So it's more like, you know, one person has the bakery and one person has been always making cheese and another person always <laughs> making paper. All of a sudden, oh my gosh, here we have a pizza right <laughs> the additional detail or oh, why don't we add a little bit of pepper on top or you know mushroom yeah. on top so yukiko it seems as though you organize your lab such that magic can happen because there's a variety it's not that everybody's working on the same thing that would uh, not be conducive to magic but rather different people are working on related but very distinct aspects so related to prevent things from being too random but also distinct mm -hmm. to prevent things from being too stale and then the magic can happen but it's really up to you isn't it to make sure It's kind of like a Goldilocks principle. It has to be just right in the middle. It can't be too crazy, too random, or too stale. Yeah. Do you have a system or an intuition 
for how to make sure that there's the right kind of variation? Yeah, that's really interesting question. In my, I think now 16 years or so in my lab, what I came to realize is that actually uniqueness of individual, everybody is really unique. Each one of our brains are wired differently. So one person's brain started incubating some ideas. So that means you don't want to influence that process too much by telling them what to do from outside, right? Mm -hmm. You have 20 people, there's 20 different things evolving in their head. But if they never mix anything, that's not interesting. That's not the ecosystem at all, right? Once you allow them to develop certain idea of the things in their head, Mm -hmm. then we start discussing. And then the stimulation to each other started happening. And at that point, it really like you have network of neural circuit. So <laughs> that is, you know, each neural circuit develop in one way, but then you start joining them together. And then the meta connection, I think that that can do a lot. And that's beyond yeah. that control. So that's really cool. You know, it goes back to the description of your lab as some kind of ecosystem, right? So now you're talking yeah, about the ecosystem. evolution of the ideas and the different brains and how they interconnect between the different brains. And these interactions, are they through you or is that something that happens spontaneously in the group? I would say that's both. So at this point, you know, pretty much everyone in the lab is fairly independent and engaged and active. Lots of conversation happens amongst mm. themselves. But at the same time, I feel like I'm the old, wise woman in a tribe kind of things. Because <laughs> <laughs> ancient memory, <laughs> mm. there's some knowledge, some discussion potentially lost from the past generation that I can right. contribute. and still remembers their conversation with former lab members. And when that happens, I can contribute yeah. <laughs> ancient knowledge to the group. Yeah. And so that's interesting to have the image of you as the elder statesman of the lab, reminding folks of the history. But I want to ask you, when you um, first encounter a person that wants to join your lab, what kind of people do you think can fit in such a model? Are there people that you think will thrive in the lab, but other people, they have a kind of mindset that maybe wouldn't work here? Yeah, exactly. That's really interesting. There was probably a couple of formative experience early in my career. So retrospect, probably I had some sort of intuitive affinity to people with independent mind, but I wasn't aware of it. I was not systematically recruiting people with independent mind. But my first graduate student was a very independent person. When she was trying to find her first PhD project, we would have a discussion. And then I thought maybe she's going to do this or that. But then, you know, after a while, it kind of comes clear she wasn't that interested in that particular question. That probably was a process of three months or so. But finally, when she came to my office, I read this paper. I really want to work on this question. You know, the spark in her eyes was just so unmistakable. Mm. I mean, what can I do? (laughs) (laughs) I can tell, you know, you're very fascinated by that. I mean, I think that's the only way we could go, right? Mm. So I think I learned a lot from that experience. I think we can do our best when we are truly interested in something. 
And I think that, in a sense, snowballed in a good way because I understood what's exciting to one person means a lot to each of us. And then by reflecting, I myself was exactly that kind of person. I cannot just work on anything. But, you know, when something clicks in my heart, how much I am willing to go. So I think everybody has to find their own kind of question. So science is very personal. It's something that I've discovered in the past that I put a student on a project because there was a certain grant to do something and then I felt obliged to actually do it and the poor student had to do this. Even if we discovered that it wasn't really what he was excited about. And, you know, in retrospect, that was really a bad experience for everybody involved. You need to be really excited about the problem that you're working on. And what one person is excited about can be totally boring to another person. So you really have to match that very well. And if you have the freedom to allow the people to choose their own directions, of course, that's perfect. I think it's a very unique thing about science, actually, that this happens. Because if you think about people that work in, say, the financial world, or I imagine for them it's different, and they might see us scientists as being like unprofessional if we say, <laughs> oh, I don't want to work on this. I don't feel passionate about that. Like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You have to do it. It's your job. You got to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, no, no, I don't, I don't, I don't see it. myself don't. there. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. We scientists can't do it. Or maybe we just feel we're unique. Do you think you could go that everybody is like this, but just scientists feel that they're unique? Probably, yes. I think science encompasses a very broad area. Some people coming up with a new hypothesis, some people solidifying that hypothesis, you got to study testing and to really solidify the ground. But some group of scientists are much more like artists, right? And then whether or not society finds a value in it, it's really, in a sense, you know, the society's decision or judgment. And of course, the importance for that, because I think all the technology and the medicine all came from that kind of early ideas done by the people who really didn't follow the instruction or just went ahead with their own way. For example, you know, the, uh, you know, the Monet or Impressionism, Pointerism mm -hmm. did the new way of art. You could say that was crazy, <laughs> not <laughs> totally not traditional. So they did what they liked. And then after that, in a retrospect, we could appreciate it. So, you know, I might be wrong, but what I think is that also for the people who invented a new kind of doing art, also for those people, it might have been important that they were not totally alone, right? Society as a whole might not have cared and might have said, oh, this is not really art. But the fact that they had colleagues who appreciated what they did Yeah. might have been important. And the same thing might be true for us as a scientist, I mm -hmm. imagine, right? Because, you know, if you would do something, but everyone, like all your colleagues would tell you that's totally boring what you're doing and, you know, I totally don't care. I think right. it would be frustrating, don't you think? I completely agree. I can't agree more. When you're doing anything new, I mean, any degree of newness, right? I don't necessarily say I'm doing super new things, but even my degree of newness, which is not that much, but still whenever we say anything new, 
we are very nervous. We are very afraid. Right. Yeah, so, we might be rejected by society. Yeah. So that means every time we step into new things that nobody has stepped into, and our newness is not completed out there, right? Somebody all of a sudden landed on the moon. No, no, no. You right. know, I'm in the backyard. This is a fast step into the forest. Still, that makes us pretty nervous. So, Yukio, I really like this evolutionary model of how science works in the sense that the individual, because of their passion, because of their personality, they choose something to work on. In a sense, in the evolutionary algorithm, that creates variation. And then there's society. Society is like selection. It chooses, oh, this is good, oh, this is bad. My question is, to what degree do you think a person can work in isolation for a while to generate such variation because in order to do something new before society can make a judgment on it a lot of work and effort has to go into it you know maybe probably many years of work and all this is happening before you know whether science will like it so how do you sustain excitement about something yeah i think that is related to individual personality right I think that some people can go a little long in the isolation, but not everybody can do it, obviously. So in a sense, science selects for the people that can be a little bit on their own and not require positive feedback from society for extended periods of time. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yukiko, I would like to go to a slightly different topic. You know, throughout our discussion, you've brought up a very wide range of different analogies. It seems that you really like to think in terms of analogies. We had the puzzle pieces, right? We had the pizza. Lots of different analogies. So do you also use a lot of analogies when you think about scientific problems, when you're trying to figure something out? I do. And then one time, you know, my postdoc called me a queen of analogy. <laughs> <laughs> queen of analogies. I like that. Science, I don't necessarily call it the team effort because we are really good, cohesive group of people, but we don't do the teamwork in that we don't divide the predefined labor and then do things and then just get done. Everybody comes with their own individual perspective. I really like to use analogy to bring the different things together mm -hmm. to see the similarity or some sort of common theme behind many things. I think I tend to like to think many things in a little more abstract way, which really leads to lots of analogy. <laughs> and when you think about the analogies, I guess it has two sides to it. The negative side, someone could say, oh, it's not professional. You're using language that's not precise and it could lead to a misunderstanding. But on the good side, someone could say that it could lead to new ideas because you can extend the analogy and it could give you new ideas to think about. Of course, whenever we have a productive conversation, right, we have to have some sort of trust in each other. So that mm. means when we use analogy to make it less precise, of course, we run the risk of somebody almost attacking you where you got it wrong, which is true, right? right? So when you have kind of already opposing position to start with, we can't have a conversation. However, once you have a kind of mutual understanding, okay, if my analogy or some sort of, you know, the ball parking doesn't work, of course, we can always go one more layer deeper to make it accurate, right? If 
somebody comes to me trying to explain astrophysics with a very precise term, <laughs> in 10 seconds I will drop. Somebody has to use analogy <laughs> to explain what they are really working, right? So ballparking or using analogy, that's, I think, very important if you are trying to connect the different intelligence, different individual in the organic way. So if everybody believes in the value in doing so, I think everybody who participates has to agree with some sort of, you know, approximation, at least at the beginning. Yes, I think that's the crucial term at the beginning. I think when you're first trying to figure something out, when there's something that's new to everyone and that you don't understand, analogies are extremely powerful. I mean, how do you want to be precise about something you don't understand, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yukiko, I want to ask you a question about how the society of science perceives you. What I mean by this is this. So you tend to go from field to field, really, and create new fields. And probably when someone comes up to you and they say, Yukiko, what do you study? What do you do? I imagine you can have two answers. One is probably you have a simple answer where you just say very general things. Maybe you simplify it or you just talk about one project. And the yeah. second kind of answer is the truth, which is you study whatever is interesting right now and you have no limits. So do you feel sometimes that the scientists try to stereotype you and put you into just one box? Like you're a germline person, you can't do anything else. Exactly. So that's a really interesting question. Indeed, I mean, depending on how many seconds to how many minutes I have to express right. myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I generally study germ cells using Drosophila as a model system, but that led us to go into many different directions. I don't always necessarily know what I'm studying. <laughs> <laughs> right. The scope, yeah. But that's kind of typical for real science, right? You know, if we knew exactly what we were studying, then it wouldn't be science. Exactly. You know, that's yeah. a phrase that people attribute to Einstein, despite the fact that he probably never said that, but it's still right. very true. I think we could say, it's much easier to say what you have worked on in the past. Once a project is done, you can say what it was. Right. So I think we should start to wrap up. Were there things that we didn't get a chance to ask you, Yukiko, but you wanted to say? This was really fun conversation. I mean, in a sense, I think I have never talked about how I do science for the stretch of one hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, it's interesting, right? Yeah, it's interesting how we never do that. This is the most important part because people who are not in the field of science see us very inorganic or very sterile, you know, you just diligently work to prove a hypothesis and then we are completely not like that. No, no, we're very different from what many people might think, actually. So Yukiko, thank you so much. That was fascinating to have this discussion. Yeah, that was amazing. Thank you so much. 